how great it is to see faces. Faces. Well, sort of. Half faces. Eyes. It's great to see everyone's eyes this morning. Isaiah 55 is our passage. So if you would open your Bibles and turn there. I want to just again reiterate the thankfulness for those who put all this together, thinking specifically of Mark Jacobs, who's gone above and beyond what he's done to get all the live streaming set up and all the technical pieces and all that. Thank you for the deacons, the deaconesses. I want to thank Steve Myers as well for figuring out all the logistics of seating. And I want to thank you all for being here. And I want to thank those who are watching on live stream for uh, joining us as well. To our passage this morning, Isaiah 55. Let me pray first. Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor as, as Paul already prayed. Reveal yourself strong to us this morning. Help us to find joy. And as we hear, help us to come to you. Help us to repent of our sins and help us to go out with joy. Help us to leave here this morning with a joy, a deeper joy that we did not have when we came in. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, it took five years, but we finally got to see it. Hamilton. For, for many years, I have to admit, I haven't really paid much attention to it. It was kind of in the background. My wife and the, my daughters in particular listened to it for so long. Of course, we, you know, they didn't get the seat either, but they listened to the soundtrack and played it for so long. And I, I got to hear it in the distance a bit. It was kind of background noise as the girls played the soundtrack. But I didn't really know about the story. I didn't really know. My American history is pretty sad when it comes to that time. But you know what? It was brilliantly done. I really loved it. But it was also sad. I think the best way to describe Hamilton is a historic hip-hop tragedy. Alexander Hamilton was driven. One of the main themes in the musical is that of satisfaction, of striving for satisfaction, specifically of Hamilton always seeking but never fully finding that satisfaction he was relentless, tireless in the pursuit of what he wanted, but in the end, it all fell apart. One of the songs called Satisfied ends with the words, he will never be satisfied. In many ways, Alexander Hamilton's life was a tragedy, and the pursuit of satisfaction when directed towards the wrong things in the wrong places always ends in tragedy. See, Hamilton almost ruined his marriage to Eliza. His son Philip was killed in a duel, and three years later, at, ironically, at the hands of Aaron Burr, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, he himself was killed in a duel. Hamilton's pursuit ended with emptiness. It ended with loss. After the death of his son, the musical comes to what is now my favorite song in the entire play. It's quiet uptown. It's a song of mourning. The words go like this. There are moments that the words don't reach, 
there is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. The moments when you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. See, it's those unimaginable moments, the losing the child. He sings later, if I could spare his life, if I could trade his life for mine, he'd be standing here right now, and you, Eliza, my wife, would smile, and that would be enough. Suffering, too terrible to name. But there are also moments of hope. Toward the end of the song, the words echo. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. See, there is grace too powerful to name. In that moment, Eliza takes Alexander's hand and the ensemble sings, Forgiveness, can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? Eliza forgives Alexander and a glimmer of hope emerges. See, in the midst of unimaginable tragedy, there is also unimaginable forgiveness. Repentance brings restoration. In the midst of unimaginable heartbreak, there's also unimaginable comfort. There's a grace too powerful to name, and that grace brings hope. As you know, the Christian life is a process often full of hardship and tragedy. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. But with that suffering comes a grace too powerful to name. This grace, this comfort comes through the hard road of repentance. See, repentance is a continual coming to the Lord. We, of all people, are prone to wander, prone to leave the Lord we love. So when we wander into sin or forgetfulness of the Lord's goodness and mercy, we must return. We need to see our need. We need to repent. And then we will find the joy that comes with being comforted by the Lord, a grace that is too powerful to name. In Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13, we encounter such a powerful grace. We encounter the grace, this good news of the gospel. How do we experience it? How do we grasp it? How do we understand it? There's a threefold movement of the gospel in Isaiah 55. In verses 1 to 5, my first point is that we must come needy. Verses 1 to 5, we come needy. The second point, we must return quickly in verses 6 to 9. And then lastly, we should go out joyfully in verses 10 to 13. We come needy, we return quickly, we go out joyfully. See, comfort comes through traveling the hard road of repentance, but joy is found at the end. Coming needy, returning quickly to the Lord to help us discover a grace that is far too powerful to name, a grace that leads us to joy, a grace that leads us to joy-filled lives. So let's begin, brothers and sisters, in verses 1 to 5, to come to the Lord needy. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Throughout these latter chapters of Isaiah, there's a focused invitation. It's a call for the Lord, of the Lord for his people to return to him. And it's not just a call to return to him. It's a call to return to him to partake of a feast. See, throughout Scripture, when God calls his people, he calls them to fellowship, to enter into his feast, to feast ultimately on him. So let me ask you this. Are you thirsty? Then come. Are you hungry? Then come. Are you poor? Then come. Are you needy? Then come. Christ calls us. Isaiah calls us. The Lord calls us. Come to the waters so your thirst may be satisfied. Come, eat and be satisfied. Come to the free offer of the Lord's feast. But then Isaiah asks the question, why do you spend money on things that will not satisfy? And are we not as a people so quick to chase after other lesser things that do not satisfy? We, the redeemed of the Lord of hosts, and here we are running after little idols, little counterfeits, little false gods, things that distract us. We become distracted. We are waylaid by life and we forget our Lord every single week and we ignore his invitation. We ignore his feast and instead we eat the crumbs. A feast is displayed before us and we're busy wallowing in the mud and mire. We are far too easily pleased, far too easily satisfied with lesser things. A well-known quote of C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory says this, Our Lord, writes Lewis, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, we will never find the eternal comfort of the Lord, that grace that is too powerful to name, if we remain half-hearted creatures, if we become satisfied with drink and sex and ambition or whatever else it is that is not God. Infinite joy is offered to us. The Lord calls us to come. He calls us to himself, but here we are like ignorant children enjoying making mud pies because we've never experienced what a real holiday the real vacation at the speech is. Brothers and sisters, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for far too less. 
So what does scripture call us to? Listen to me, says the Lord. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in the feast I have put before you. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves. And then it says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The Lord says, come and be satisfied in me. The Lord promises to be our feast, our satisfaction. We need to come. We need to eat what is good. We need to delight ourselves in the rich food before us. We need to incline our ears to come to the Lord, to hear so that our souls may live. The Lord promises his people an everlasting covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. See, the Lord's steadfast love is offered to us, and he in essence is asking, will you receive my love? Will you come to my feast? Will you be satisfied in me alone? Brothers and sisters, the call of God's word is for us to come. We need to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Do you not know that a table is prepared before us, even in the presence of our enemies? He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. Goodness and mercy follow us all the lives, and we of all people will dwell in the presence of our Lord forever. He calls us to come. Jesus, our precious Savior, bids us come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. May we be satisfied with nothing less than Jesus. Jesus calls us, come Come needy, but come. As we come, the second point, we need to come quickly. We need to return quickly, and that involves our repentance. Look at verses 6 through 9. The prophet says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will, not, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is nothing short of a call to repentance. Repentance is nothing but complete and total surrender to the sovereign Lord. And here is the Lord's invitation. It's not a bare invitation without any requirements. It's an invitation to come. It's an invitation to repent. It's an invitation to turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ and then to live a life marked by obedience. For us, the people of God, repentance leads to redemption. As we turn to the Lord, we're saved by him. The Spirit of God works in our hearts, softens cold, twisted, wicked hearts, and he softens them and regenerates us. And we're renewed by the Spirit of God. We see our sinfulness. We see our desperate need for Jesus. And we turn to him with hopeful expectation. We come to him 
we repent of our sins, turn to Jesus, the lover of our souls, and we find satisfaction. But we must do it quickly. Jesus, in Revelation chapters 2 to 3, calls the church back to himself. To most of the churches, he says this, I have this against you. I wonder what he has against us as a church. I have this against you. So for example, the church of Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The Ephesians believers had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten the Lord. They were carried away by making mud pies in the slums, and they failed to see the Lord's offer of himself. But then there's a call to repentance. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And then Jesus issues a warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, repent, return. This is Jesus' call to the church at Ephesus, and I believe to every church, to every believer, to remember, repent, and return. If we fail to come back to him or to him in the first time, then he promises to remove our lampstand. Now John tells us earlier what that lampstand is. He basically says the lampstand is the church. So when Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand, he is saying you will cease to be a church if you do not repent you will be cast off to be as nothing. Now, God is long-suffering, and we often talk about the long-suffering nature of God, but let me tell you this, his patience does run out. His promises judgment to those who fail to repent. I will remove your lampstand, Jesus says. You will cease to be a church. Now, did you know that it's estimated that about 10 churches close for a variety of reasons every single day? And that's the low estimate. Some even estimate that six to 10,000 churches close every single year. Many different reasons, but I can, I'm pretty certain that many of them are for failure to repent. Regardless of the exact amount, the point is this. Christ does remove lampstands. He kills churches for unrepentance. I have personally walked the streets where the early church used to be in modern-day Turkey, and I can tell you right now that the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are pretty much all gone. Maybe a few small remnants of believers in those cities. Jesus removed their lampstand from them. So what must we do? We're told, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. God is long-suffering. His patience does run out. Christ removes lampstands, but he also extends powerful grace to those who return. This should always serve as a warning to us, but also a comfort. The message of Revelation is clear. To him who conquers, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To him who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To him who conquers, I will give him hidden manna. To him who conquers, I give him authority over the nations. 
To him who conquers, I will clothe him in white garments. To him who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And to him who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. To him who conquers. The conquering ones are the repentant ones. This is the point. Repentance takes work. Overcoming takes work. Repentance is a way of life. It is a lifestyle. Repentance brings about faith. And faith leads us back into deeper repentance. And that deeper repentance then leads us into deeper faith. And on and on it goes. So we overcome by remembering, repenting, and returning to our first love, to the lover of our souls. Return to the Lord, Isaiah says, so that he may have compassion, so he may abundantly pardon. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us, return quickly. Remember, repent, and return. But that returning, that repentance leads us into joy. Look at verses 10 to the end of the chapter. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of God unfolds its perfect promises in the lives of all who believe. In other words, the word works the word takes effect, the word produces, the word gives life. It does what it is meant to do. It fulfills, it succeeds, it accomplishes its purpose. The word of God is like rain and snow that come down from heaven, bring life, vitality, and renewal to the earth. This is what the word is like. It goes out from the Lord's mouth and never, never, never returns empty. It always accomplishes what the Lord purposes the word never fails. But the word doesn't just create life, but from that newly created life, the word springs forth both praise and joy. That is what the word working in our hearts and minds should do, spring forth praise and joy. For you, God's people, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That joy comes only as the word works in you. And it's not just us, it's all of creation. All of creation. Can you not look forward to that day when all creation joins our voices? The mountains break into song. The hills echo the joyful choruses of God's praise. The trees of the field clap their hands in joyful celebration of God's life-giving word. Joy. 
But you know what's interesting about joy? It's not natural. It is not a natural response to reality. See, life is too hard. It's too weighty. It's too difficult for joy to just be be this natural byproduct that we get. See, there are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. But there is a grace too powerful to name. Forgiveness that is unimaginable. Forgiveness that brings joy. And joy is our response to the good news. Joy comes from the life-giving power of the word only when we grasp and believe and trust in the person and work of our Lord Jesus are then we able to have a sense of joy, hope, and love in this world. Without Christ, without the gospel, without this good news, joy ceases to exist. Joy disappears. Without the gospel, we're left only with the tragedy of the unimaginable. But with Christ, with his gospel, there is hope, there is love, there is peace, and there is a joy, there is a grace that is too powerful to name. Take a look at verse 13. This is a picture of paradise regained. A picture of the curse being removed. The Lord, if you remember in Genesis 3.17, curses the ground because of Adam's rebellion. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And now in verse 13 of Isaiah 55, the curse is reversed. Instead of thorns and briars, up comes strong, life-giving trees. And those trees serve as a testament of the Lord's great name. They shall make a name for the Lord. They will be an everlasting sign that will never be cut off. The Lord gives life. The Lord reverses the curse. The Lord brings salvation, redemption, eternal comfort to all who believe. Jesus himself, by hanging on a cross, a wretched, cruel tree establishes the life-giving tree that serves the sign of the Lord's faithful, never-breaking, never-ending, everlasting covenant. And today and forever, the cross now stands as a sign and a symbol of the Lord's deep covenant love. The cross is an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. It is a covenant sign of the Lord's great steadfast love for his people. It's his declaration that I am your God. You are my people and nothing will separate us ever. And Isaiah is left to only say this, echoing the words of John. Oh, what love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God for the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot to be joyful for. Go out joyfully and be led forth and peace. Eternal comfort comes through the hard but good road of repentance. Jesus calls us, come, come needy. Jesus calls us, return, repent quickly. 
But Jesus calls us to go out joyfully. So brothers and sisters, let us arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace us in his arms, in the arms of our dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Father, you call us to come. You call us to find satisfaction in Christ alone. Spirit of God, make us long, create a deeper longing than there is right now in our hearts, a deeper, deeper longing like the deer that pants, that longs, that strives after that flowing stream. Help us to have such a longing. May our souls long after you, O living God. May we come to you broken and needy as we are. And may we find satisfaction in you. Keep us from all the foolish things that we chase after that will not satisfy. And if we are stuck up in them, if we're busy making mud pies in the slum, help us to see that you offer us an eternal holiday at the sea. We, may we return to you then quickly in repentance. May we discover your grace that is too powerful to be named. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. May we find rest in your salvation and joy in your redemption. And may we go out in joy and be led forth in peace. May we join the voices of all of creation in singing to the glory of God the Father, of God the Son, and God the Spirit. We pray this in the great and mighty and glorious and powerful, majestic and wonderful, beautiful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.